didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think that. you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about. And we go searching for perspectives on that topic that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that is so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. When we encounter a perspective that challenges us, the natural instinct is to either shut down or push back. It's a defense mechanism, right? One of our main goals with this podcast is to provide an opportunity for you to stay in that discomfort. Because our experience, my experience personally, is that when we do that, we end up with a more nuanced view of the world that can help us become better citizens, more effective advocates, and kinder neighbors. Listening to Top of Mind is a weekly chance to practice this. But I would like to know what this idea looks like in your life on a daily basis. So in the coming weeks, we will be launching a series called Stick With It, where we talk with listeners about a time they encountered a perspective that felt challenging or uncomfortable, but they chose to stick with it, and they're glad they did. Have you got a story like that? It doesn't have to be huge or life-changing. These chances to engage rather than retreat when we feel challenged pop up all the time, and we want to get better at embracing them. So send your thoughts to topofmind at byu.edu and stay tuned for these stick with it conversations to start hitting the Top of Mind podcast feed. In the meantime, I want you to meet Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman. They coined a phrase that perfectly captures what I've just been trying to explain. Courageous Discomfort is the title of their new book. And Shantara and Rosalind are with me now. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. So a couple of things important for people to know. You two are close friends. Uh, You're authors. Rosalind, you wrote the book that became the movie Mean Girls. (laughs) Um, And Shantara, you're a life coach and a trainer. And both of you do a lot of training on how to have difficult conversations. And this book, Courageous Discomfort, focuses specifically on conversations about race. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with the phrase courageous discomfort? I think it was a shower moment, right, Shantara? It was a definite, you know, you get your best thoughts in the shower. Do you know that there are actually notepads that you can have that are waterproof <laughs> that, you can, that you can have in the shower? That will, and it was one of, the, because of course we were trying to come up with the title and and it was one of those, um, one of those shower moments that just like, huh, because what we're, what we're asking is for people to still be brave, to still be courageous in the middle of the discomfort. And and that was that was absolutely a shower moment. <laughs> so the other thing people need to know is that Shantara, you're black, Rosalind, you're white. And it just seems to me that that fact must have meant for some discomfort in the writing of this book. <laughs> is there a story you could share with us? Oh, there's so many stories. <laughs> Pick a day. Pick a day. <laughs> Um, this is Rosalind and I'll start with, uh, the one that we started arguing about. I think it was one of the first ones that we started arguing about, or it's just got, it wasn't arguing. Maybe it was just a really understanding how different we were going to see the Mm -hmm. content of what we were writing and the approach and the strategy. Mm -hmm. So for Shantara in the beginning of, um, of the writing process, there would be a lot of her saying, when we were trying to explain things, um, systemic racism as an explanation for various things. And I very much went back to her and said, so the many of the readers that we anticipate hopefully reading this book are going to read those two words and they're not going to be able to visualize what that mm-hmm. means. As mm-hmm. obvious as it is to you and it's your living, breathing world, mm-hmm. it is not going to be obvious. And mm-hmm. we can't use it as a catch-all explanation for a reason for something. We have to visual, we have to make it visual, visual to the reader. Um, the reader who doesn't think that they live in the world like this. Mm-hmm. And that was really, I mean, Shantara, don't you think that was, was that, oh, I mean, yeah. I don't, yeah, that was, how did you feel when I first said that to you? 
it was, and, and you know, this is Shantara, and I think it was, <laughs> it was hard. It was really hard because it was one of those things where I'm like, all of this is systemic racism. All of this is, you know, all of the injustice and inequality and um, things that we're trying to, you know, talk to people about. If you, if you really want to put a blanket statement, and that's what I felt like I wanted to do was just put a blanket, like, oh, because of systemic racism, this is why this happens. And mm -hmm. it would, it, but it made me better i want to say it made me a better writer really what was it about the rosalind saying like we're gonna have to kind of be more explicit here mm -hmm. that, that that upset you what what made what, what was difficult about that for you because i i really felt like having to break it down you know and and that was it, it becomes irritating it becomes um, it becomes frustrating for a black person, an indigenous person, a person of color, because you really feel like you want to say, duh. This is something that you live every day yeah. and and feeling like you have to yet again explain that it mm -hmm. exists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there were layers of courageous discomfort going on in this experience mm -hmm. for the two of you, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm hearing this right, you know, Rosalind, you're, um, you must have kind of wondered, hesitated, how do I bring this up with Shantara that, you know, as she's writing, as we're co-writing this, that like we're going to have to stop and break down the nature of systemic racism. And you probably suspected that that would sort of you know, that that would frustrate her? Is that fair <laughs> Did to I say? suspect it? Did I suspect it? There was no, there was no suspecting. There was 0% suspecting. Um, I mean, the, what I tried to do in the beginning was I would write like in our Google notes, I'd be like, hey, you know, I'd like for you to think about this maybe in this way, right? Hard and then, eye roll. Hard right. Eye roll. And, then she, and I knew, and I knew she would eye roll and she would say, can you, and she would say, can you just tell me what you think? And I would say, great. Now that I have permission, I was like, that doesn't work. It doesn't work mm. like you're not wrong. I mean, and this is the thing is you're and, and this is why when you're close to someone and you can talk to them and this is why we could do this is that, um, yeah, sure. I knew that how this was going to go, but I also needed per I did need permission from her in a way as working together and um, because this stuff is painful and there are times during the book for Shantara that um, you know, that, you know, it's like you've signed up to do this, but wow, how hard is it? And it's hard. Yeah it was uncomfortable and you had to enter into this with her, bring it up because it sounds like you felt like it would be a better book as a result, yeah. that this was going to be necessary. And Shantara, of course, you were, you described how you had to sort of, um, you know, not bail on the book and sort of sit with it, right? And, and sort of figure out, like, how can I be true to what I believe in this process, but also, you know, recognize what Rosalind is saying and if there's something that we can work on together. And so you do end up, um, what, what strikes me about the book is that, um, that frequently, you know, there are these words that are going to cause, especially when it comes to race, there are these phrases, white privilege, systemic discrimination, that you acknowledge, quite frankly, in the book, like, hey, we know that if we say this word, mm -hmm. that a lot of, you know, readers, especially probably white readers, are going to be inclined to kind of dismiss everything else that comes after that word mm -hmm. because you have a specific view of it. And um, and so what you were trying to do, in effect, I felt like was um, create a space in the book so that readers could come to it and sort of be lured into a place of courageous discomfort, right? Like, hey, hang on, don't turn away from yeah. us quite yet. Like, <laughs> we acknowledge that you feel uncomfortable with this and there are some legitimate reasons why you might <laughs> and you have dignity and it's okay to feel these things, but please sit with us and let's see if we can get to someplace else. So what is the someplace else? What is the value of sitting with the discomfort in a way that's courageous? Where do you end up that's, that makes it worth it? You know, I, I think that um, I love what you just said because part of it is we don't want to feel the discomfort at all. Like we do everything in our power to avoid discomfort. And that's with everything. Forget, I mean, including race and racism discussion, you know, but we don't want to be uncomfortable. We, we as human beings, why would anyone want to be uncomfortable, right? And so this idea of asking, asking readers to just stay in it, because on the other side of it, there is more empathy, there is more understanding, there is more like, oh, I get that. There, and when you can see how 
and not to use systemic racism, but when you can see how <laughs> systemic racism, when you can see how um, people of color, black people, indige indigenous people are not treated with dignity because of our the way our systems are set up. And then when we can look at our own individual selves and see how this is happening and how maybe, you know, I didn't know that I wasn't treating that person with dignity. That was not my intent. But now I see, I see what's happening. Now I can behave differently. Now I may even say something, you know, at family dinner. Um, now I can speak up in a way that I never have before, or now I can do something that I've never done before. And so, but, but that discomfort that we try to avoid in all things, that discomfort is necessary to make us courageous. I'm speaking with Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman, who are close friends and co-authors of a new book called Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. It's a guidebook for doing this thing we are really interested in here at Top of Mind, coming up against a perspective that makes us squirm a bit because it challenges our own worldview or brings up some emotions we'd rather not feel. And then instead of turning away from that, deciding to stick with that discomfort. And why would you want to do that? Let's find out. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. As we have heard, Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman had ample opportunity to refine their skills at embracing courageous discomfort while writing their book about having conversations on race and racism. The main reason their friendship could even survive the process of writing the book is that they have been grappling with these issues together really from the time they first met decades ago. How did you two become friends? Mm. <laughs> Allison, do you want to tell it? <laughs> sure. Um, so I am a native Washingtonian. And I'd gone to school in Los Angeles, came back to DC, and at a very young age, I was like 22, um, I started a nonprofit um, that was that basically turned into a social emotional learning program for young people. And um, a colleague of mine who was also running an organization called me. His name is Greg Taylor, and he now runs the NBA Foundation. And um, he called me. He was running this like community a community foundation. Said I've just hired somebody that is going to work for me, leave me and work for you and become a really close friend, your best friend. And I was like, really? I was like, really? And he's like, oh, yeah, she's definitely going to leave me. And um, and that is actually exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we worked together for many, many years and, um, you know, in the organization. And then the thing for me was that I did have um, this enormous book success about four years later, and then this movie came out. This and so Queen Bees was the basis for all of the content in Mean Girls, and my character is sort of the math character in that's like loosely affiliated, loosely associated, I guess. And so my life just completely changed when that happened. And um, when you go through something like that, and you know, you get tend to get really, really close to a couple of people who you can trust as you go through the process. And Shantara was one of those people. And Shantara, were you looking for a friend? <laughs> you know, I wasn't. And, and <laughs> I, it wasn't on my card um, moving into DC. It was, and I remember, um, I remember Greg telling me about Rosalind, and I was excited because she had started this nonprofit. Um, and I couldn't wait to meet her because in my mind, moving to DC and, you know, I was, I moved um, as an AmeriCorps VISTA. So it's like the Peace Corps for your assignments in the United States. And so when I, when Greg told me about her, I was like, oh my gosh, I, can you think I could reach out to her and invite her to coffee and, you know, ask her about starting a nonprofit? And he was like, yeah, no, yeah, sure, do that. And so I did, and I was so excited, right? I was so excited to meet this woman who, like she said, started this nonprofit at a young age. And I was around that age when I moved to DC. So I was really ready to get all this wisdom and insight about starting a nonprofit. And she was, <laughs> she said, you don't, you don't want to do that. And I was like, what? She said, no, don't, don't do that. It's hard. You got to have a board. I mean, she went through, which people don't tell you. They don't tell you the, the, 
the work that it takes to have a nonprofit organization. And I just remember looking at her like, you have deflated every <laughs> dream, you know, every bubble. But I so appreciated her honesty, right? I just, I just met her and she was so candid about what it took. And she was like, why do you want to do that? And I, and I was telling her, well, because I work with young people and this is, you know, how you have to work with young people. Like I just, it was awesome. Sad, but awesome, right? <laughs> so <laughs> when my VISTA term was over and I was actually getting ready to move back to Dallas and um, and I, it was one of those things that I really didn't want to, but there was some family stuff going on. And, you know, I felt like if I was there, none of the family stuff would happen because, you know, I am, I can fix all things, which is so not true. But, you know, you just have this, this concept in your mind that I need to go home. And if I go home, then none of this bad stuff will be happening. And, um, and Ross called me as I was getting ready, as I was getting ready to go. And she was like, Hey, I just, I'm restructuring my nonprofit. Do you want to, do you want to come work with me? And I was like, this, this the same woman that told me, <laughs> but it was such a, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a preacher, I'm a believer, you know, it was such a, a God wink. And I was just like, huh. And so I remember telling her I'm going home for two weeks, but I will come back. I. I, I, we can do this. We can do this together. And and I think part of us being um, so you know young and and I didn't know protocol. I didn't know um, I didn't know you couldn't you shouldn't say certain things to your boss. I didn't know you know I just so we quickly formed a relationship that I really think is. I think it was a gift. I know it was a gift because I remember one of our first trips that we took was to Boston. And it was back in the day when we had paper maps. And I remember um, Ross bought a paper map at you know, one of the kiosks. And we got in the car, <laughs> in the rental car, and she handed me a map. And she was like, okay, lead the way. And I looked at her like, I don't do maps. And, we, and she laughed so hard. And we both, both laughed. And, and it was just that thing of, oh, we're going to know each other for the rest of our lives. Like mm. I can be honest with her and she was my boss, you know, but I was like, uh, 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 I don't, mm. I'll drive, but uh, uh, I don't do math. <laughs> so. Do you, it's so, it's so, it's so great. And I love, I mean, you, you clearly just really cherish one another. It, uh, it's so fun to talk to friends like this, but um, do you remember, can you recall, and maybe you have different recollections, you probably do, but can you remember one of the first moments where you had to sort of choose to sit courageously in discomfort with one another about race? Oh, gosh. The I, first ones? Yeah. Um, well, I remember something from work where we had a growing, we had a growing amount of people working with us, and, and some of them were young black men. And I was um, too lenient on one of them, I wasn't holding them accountable for, I think like being late and not doing, um, not doing their work the way that they should. And my recollection is that Shantara pulled me aside and said to me, you are, um, you're being too nice to him because she didn't say what, what did, I can't exactly remember. She's like, basically you're being too nice to him because he's a young black man and you're not holding him accountable professionally the way that you should. And I, for, when I first heard that, when she first told me that, I remember thinking, wait, what? Like, what? No way. Like, no way. And then I had a moment of taking a step back and thinking, wait a minute, hold on one second. Oh, yeah, she's totally right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I am. Yeah, you're totally, yep, she's totally right. And, um, and that was really, really hard. I eventually had to let that person go. And I liked that person, like a great person. Um, and um, I had to really, I had to really own that I was holding that person or not, um, uh, holding them accountable that the way I needed to. Because of his race? Was, yeah, was totally. Race I was being too, yeah, I was being, I was not holding him accountable, you know, for, I don't know, for various reasons, right? I mean, like, you know, like I'll be, you know, being honest about that. I, I'm, I, what was I, Shantara? I was like 
30-year-old white woman running a nonprofit in D.C. And so, you know, this was a young man that I really genuinely liked. I genuinely thought he was, you know, I could see wonderful things in him. Um, He also made the organization look good, right? I mean, like, I was not above thinking it's important to have people of different races represent this organization for the optics of it. And and Rosalind, do you think... um do you think you had some some sort of bias at play? I, yeah, of course I had bias. And, um, and some of it was explicit and some of it was implicit. And I think one of the things that these situations and a relationship like you know, when Shantara and I have you know, difficult conversations is, I mean, as we have over the years, I think it's been an opportunity where some, you, know, you have these moments where your implicit bias, the bias that you don't really understand about yourself or you, don't, you either don't know or it's like a feeling and you can't put words to it, then these situations make them come to light and you have to look at it. And so the bias that I had for him, I definitely, and I'm, I, I'm about 99.9% sure how Shantara is going to answer this for me. So I'll say it and Shantara can say if I'm right or not. My bias was about, I need to give him a break because he's had a hard life. It was not about his capacity. I did not have bias, that doesn't, that, you know, like when you really have to, when you think about and feel about bias, I think you really have to sit with your heart and think like what rings true to me and like really sit, right, and be uncomfortable. And I think it's really important to sit with like, what feels right to me about what what I'm doing and why, in the ways when it's not so great. And so, like, in answering your question right now, I'm doing that right now. Like, well, what what really does feel true to me? Not right, but, like, what feels true to me. And what feels true to me is that I had bias that I felt badly that he had not had the education, for example, that I had had. Um, He had grown up and gone to a not great public school. I had gone to, in in basically the same city, I had gone to a really, really good private school. Sometimes people don't have as much, because of systemic racism, do not have as much educational opportunity. And so I very much felt the guilt of that and and also the awareness of it. And therefore, I was working through the feelings of guilt or feelings of awareness, feelings of acknowledgement. And and I am, that is my story. And one of the things that Shantara um, and we, I remember talking a lot about is that I was putting my story and my words onto his life. And I certainly wasn't doing him any favors, not holding him accountable. Hmm. Shantara, how do you see this story? Was I right? Yes. Was I right? Was I right? Was I right? <laughs> Most important thing was, was I right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. I remember. And this is when I, when I think, you know, age and, and I did not know that maybe you because I didn't even think twice about saying this to her I didn't I remember being I didn't I don't even think I, courageous or I, I none of that I was just like I need to tell her that this is not helping <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I just was like hey can I talk to you about something listen the way you, and it was I didn't even know and that maybe I should think about this and I was like I need to tell her because it's affecting our work it's affecting how we as an organization show up. It's affecting how we show up not only in DC, but how we show up in other schools that we get to partner with. It's it's not a good look. And so being able to know that I need to say this to her and I, I can. Like what I always tell people is that I didn't feel, there wasn't anything that Ross, that Rosalind, you know, showed me that said i i won't be able to have these hard conversations that there and i appreciated that so much can i just say that like there have been many times where i have disagreed at at first like my first initial reaction is to disagree and say like not like basically like nah and then um and then shantara sort of says looks at me and and then i have this thing of like oh huh maybe i should think about this and then i do think about it and then i have that feeling where it then becomes words of, oh yeah, I think there's actually a part, I mean, A, I think there's part of this is true, and B, and I think this is really important, is that the person on the receiving end in my situation has to remember that the person who's giving the information, the person in Shantara's place, for the most part, and this is, even in this cancel culture that we live in, and people constantly sort of pointing out everybody else's mistakes, 
in the day-to-day life of our interactions with each other, it is hard to give people feedback. And so when somebody does give you feedback, I think it's really important to remember that it was hard, that they must have really cared, this really meant something to them, that they had to tell me, that they got over the discomfort, or just the like, you know, it's just easier not to, um, that, that you really need to remember that. And that always has brought me to the place of, oh yeah, I really need to, that was hard for them. So this must be, there, there really has to be a degree of truth here. So, so what are the, what are, what are the, um, what are the keys there on both sides of uh, courageous discomfort is a two way street. It sounds like you can only sit in courageous discomfort if you're both sitting in it. Otherwise, it's just sort of like uncomfortable for one person and shut down on the other side or it's just an accusation and, a, you know, and, a, and it becomes a fight. Right. So so um, so what what is required on both sides of, of a conversation, particularly when one of you feels like the other one is doing something that needs to be addressed. How, um, let's take it from the side, first of all, since Rosalind, you were just speaking of, of um, what needs to happen for, for, how do you not shut down? Even though your initial defense, your initial reaction is to be like, nah, but what are the skills? What, how can I practice being better at that? Because my nah, uh, urge is very quick <laughs> and very <laughs> loud. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I uh, so I'll say a couple things and then um, Shantara. So I think the most important is for me is that when I'm having an emotion that I feel and remember that emotions are happening in my brain and feelings are happening because of those emotions and all of that can pass. That the very strong feeling I'm having of defensiveness or embarrassment or shame or... Um, you know, any of these yucky feelings or anger that um, I can sit with them. And if I just remember that, that emotions are real, but they can pass, that it calms me down. And then I can take a step back and a little bit and have more self-compassion and more compassion to the other people, because you can only be compassionate to others if you can be compassionate to yourself. So for me, that those are the most important first steps of being in a situation where I want to react strongly and realizing like, oh, I'm getting hijacked here. Like my emotions are hijacking my ability to stay present. And so I have to remember that this can pass. And, um, and then from there, and I'll then turn it over to you, Shantara, is that I really, really try hard to remember in these situations that I am inviting the person possibly to a conversation with me. And then if it doesn't feel that maybe I'm going to have to leave, but, but I can always come back into the conversation. And that's, you know, for the most part, I think, for the most part, I think that most relationships are repairable. And being present and then taking a step back so that you can talk another day, not fight another day, talk another day, is, that's, that's where I really, that's my grounding. And so for you, Shantara, what is the, um, in this particular situation, you were the one calling Rosalind into a place of courageous discomfort while also <laughs> exhibiting a, a lot of courage in, a, in an uncomfortable moment. On your side, what are, what are the keys to uh, being on that side of the uh, of the conversation? Well, I think in that situation, our relationship we had a foundation, and so it was it was a situation where I could I. I trusted that I could say this. And even if it was a, you know, uh-uh, at the beginning, I was like, I'm just, I'm gonna just leave it and or sit, stay here like, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and just, just no, let her go it. through the no, that can't be true. Yeah. You know, and just <laughs> yeah, sitting, just just sitting with the person. But a lot of times we don't have relationships, right? When we need to say something that is um you know, that's uncomfortable or then we still need to be courageous. And I think part of the, the hard part is hearing something that may make us feel really bad or guilty or, um, or you know, and I use the word shame and I'm like, no, 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 no. There's no shame. There's no room for shame in having conversations about race and racism. There shouldn't be any shame. And so if shame is, if, if someone is leading with shame, then no, 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 no. That is not the conversation um, that's going to take us to the place of 
community of empathy of of ending systemic racism of ending um inequality of ending um injustice what what do you mean what what does leading with shame look like i think it's a it's it's accusatory it's it's um it's like you keep doing you know i can't even because it, it's not a part of my being but mm, I've been in situations, not with race and racism, where people try to shame you. And so because I know that feeling and because I know what it feels like for someone to try to shame you, I don't ever want to do that to somebody else. So even even thinking about, let I need to have a conversation with Rosalind about this situation at work, and I have no interest or intent of shaming her. So I'm a I'm a tell her I'm gonna say what I need to say, and you know and and I know I'm 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 and it's not even about I know I'm right. It's no there's experience like I if if she need me to pull out receipts I can. But I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to because I, I'm not even going into the conversation with and let me prove to you and let you know, let me have all the 50 articles and prove to you why I know that, I'm you know, to prove that I know what I'm talking about. No, no, no. It's let me present the situation and then let me sit right here as the as the as we have the conversation it's it's and i think that's such a difference in um in how we can communicate with people that the shame says let me accuse you for doing something and then i'm gonna walk away after i prove you know that i am proving what i'm saying and then i'm done with you no no Hmm. what what we want to do is I'm going to present this situation and even in my tone and the way that I'm saying it and um, humility, right? Like, and, and, and I lose, and we lose nothing when we lead with humility, humility, we don't, we don't lose anything. And so me saying this really tough thing about this coworker that I also like, like I like him a lot, right? But, but I'm looking at how we as an organization are showing up and it's not a good look. And so I need to say something, you know, to, and at the time was, I, I think I was, um, it was his supervisor. And so it was yeah, also were. like, for me, like, listen, this is a really tough situation for me. And so when I try to hold him accountable and then you basically say, oh, that's okay. It's also making me look like I don't know what I'm doing. That's Shantara McBride. She and her friend Rosalind Wiseman have written a book called Courageous Discomfort. How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. Each chapter tackles a question that might lead you to feel uncomfortable, or at the very least, uncertain what the right answer is. And then they give specific guidance on how to process that. I'm a good person. How can I be racist? Is the title of one chapter. Should I see color? Is another. How do I confront loved ones even if they don't want to listen? What does being an ally really mean? Does it always have to be about race? It's a lot. I actually mentioned to Rosalind and Shantara that I felt a little like just reading the book was an exercise in courageous discomfort. Wiggle in the chair. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we have moments in the book where we say, and now is a good time to pause. <laughs> now is a good time to perhaps, you know, just go get a glass of wine or a cup of tea or whatever you need to just get to pause. That's a good idea. Let's take a quick pause. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Shantara McBride and Rosalind Wiseman, who are friends and co-authors of this book called Courageous Discomfort, have a bunch of real-life stories in the book where one or the other of them said something that was unintentionally hurtful to the other, related to race or racism in some way. And they're both really candid about how much they've worked at getting to a place where they can hear something from the other that is hard and not bail on the situation. We've been talking about this instance where Shantara decided to invite Rosalind into courageous discomfort about being too lenient on one of their young Black employees. And when she did that, Shantara was hoping Rosalind would come around to seeing things her way. She was looking to change Rosalind's mind. But that's risky, because they write in the book that sometimes what you're hoping to change is somebody's deeply held opinion. And that's just not going to be realistic in some cases, and a lot depends on your relationship with that other person. 
They've got this line in the book that I love. It says, if you ever feel like you have won the argument, we can assure you that you are wrong. All you have done is dominate the conversation. So I asked Shantara what her plan was going into that conversation with Rosalind about the employee, keeping in mind that at the time, Rosalind was both her friend and her boss. My goal was to um, present the facts and hopefully (laughs) her mind would see that I was not that I was not just talking just to be talking. You know, and I think for a lot of time, for uh, for a lot of people, if we can understand that people are not just singing something just to hear their own voice, that that moment of, oh, wait, they're presenting me with something. So wait, let me think about who is giving me the information? Why are they giving me this information? This is not to attack me. This is not. And that's why I say there's no room for shame, you know, because I think a lot of times when we lead with I'm giving you this information and and I have no intention of shaming you. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling you the truth. And I think that made the conversation and you know, um it, it took a minute. And if she had and if she had said nah 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 and never had that moment and never had that moment of okay, maybe you're right. Like what mm-hmm. what would you have done in that situation? How do you how do you resolve once you've entered in and it just stays uncomfortable? Well, then and, you know, I, and somebody shuts down. Right. I, then I would have pulled out evidence. Then, you know, then it would have been like, okay, that's what you think. Well, let's look at this day. Let's look at this day. Let's look at this day. And then it would have been more of a, and as the executive director of this organization, is this how you want to show up in the world, right? Is this how you want? Because it's affecting how you look. And so you can say what you want. And I think that's when the evidence, that's when it gets frustrating because then, you know, as as a person of color, as a black person, as an indigenous person, when you have to, because it seems like what you say is not enough. And so then you have to prove, right, with, with evidence that this is happening. And then we wait. And then like, see, like this, this is what it is. This is what's happening in our society. This is what's happening. And so with that, with that situation, um, I'm, you know, and it, I would love to say it was like, she heard me the first time was like, got it. You know, it was, it was a, no, that can't be true. And I, I remember sitting in her office like, yeah, yeah. And watching her brain like, oh, wait, oh, wait. You know, and, and I think that's the beauty of, of conversation sitting there there was no desire to cancel there was no desire to um to not have this conversation there was no desire to you know end it it was like yeah no we're gonna sit here and i think part of the um, part of the desire was let me say this and then let's just see how it goes and it couldn't have you know it could have been a situation where months passed and and you know it would have been hard because it would have been like, gosh, I've told her this months ago, but here we are, here we are, you know, and sometimes that's how it works. It's a journey. It's not a, a quick fix. It's not going to happen, you know, with just one conversation. It is sometimes we have to stay in. Oh, my gosh, we have to stay in the conversation. We have to stay in the relationship in order to get the person to the other side. Are there any other skills that... Um that we can focus focus on developing sort of, uh, you know, individually. Well, you uh, you asked about you know this. How, what are the sentences that trigger shame or defensiveness? Also, mm. and I I think there's two of, um, and it's really about tone. But whenever you say whenever somebody says the word just in a sentence in a question, it's immediately uh, like why didn't you just dot 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 dot. And that will trigger shame and defensiveness. Um, and if it was that easy, I'm sh- the person would have done it. But when we're not in this situation, we don't. We don't. We tend to minimize, right? What we, and not really be aware of the challenges the other person has. Even and maybe we don't even know what those challenges are. But we haven't been curious to find out what they are. So when you say something like that, um, that kind of a question then I think that really does trigger shame and defensiveness. Or how did you think that was a good idea, for example? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, those are, I think those are two things. I also, 
I really feel like the basic building blocks of that somebody doesn't need to have a million reasons why when they're having an argument with you or they have a problem that they need to share with you. It's that you need to listen to their essential truth. And if they're saying one thing and you keep saying to them, like, you need to prove it to me more, prove it to me more, prove it to me mm -hmm. more. The only way that's going to go is you're going to be in, an, in a conversation about with power and no one's going to learn anything when people are trying to power over each other. So it's really an invitation. And if you feel like it has gotten to this place where somebody has to win and dominate the other person, mm -hmm. there is no point in having that conversation right now. There is no point. You have to take a pause get yourself together. You have to name what's happening in the room. Like, hey, I actually think what's happening right now is that we're not talking about race or racism or whatever it is. But what we really do is, is trying to dominate each other. And you can own it if that's something that's happening with you. Like, I'm, I'm doing it too. So I'm going to take a pause. I'm going to come back to you in a little while and we'll figure out a, a better time to talk. Because you got to stop it. You got to stop the dynamic in that moment so you can come back another day. Yeah. What is your hope with this book? <laughs> I, my hope is not only that people read the book, but they begin to have um, courageous conversations with themselves, because I think a lot of this is let me begin with me. Right. And and I think then if I am able to examine myself and then see what perhaps I've missed or what I didn't want to see or what I you know misinterpreted, all those things, then I can enter into a conversation with somebody. Then I can have a conversation with a coworker or um, a family member. And then I'm also able after that can look at systemic racism. I can look <laughs> at what's going on in our in our country, in our world, and how there is not equality, how people are not being treated with dignity, even though dignity is something that everyone gets just because they, not just because they show up in the world, you know, and I, I, I truly believe if we can get people talking, because we have focused for the past several years of only talking with people who agree with us, only only um, watching people or listening to people who we agree with, and we have avoided having hard conversations. And I really think this book can get us back around the table and, and get us back to talking. Thank you, Shantara. Rosalind? My goal is that um, people can identify one person in their life that they have disconnected from and defriended on social media in some way because of something, these issues, and that they, that meant something to them in the past, right? It was a close relationship. And that they are able to prepare in their hearts and minds how to reach out to that person again. And maybe it won't go well. Maybe the person is just absolutely intolerable and it's not safe for you to be with that person. But my goal is, is that you'll go through the process of deciding who that person would be and trying, just trying and um, seeing if you can repair the relationship. And from there, I think if we can do a little bit of that, I really think that we need to focus on the smallest acts of courage around of courageous discomfort. Let's we can go for the bigger, you know, just start small because when you start small and you can grow from there. And so that, what I just said, might seem small, but it's really not small. When we really think about that, it is not small. It was easy to defriend them because we got super, super angry and we're just like, that's it, and stop talking to them. Much, much harder to do these, the seemingly small effort to repair. So that is my hope that we can start small in that way. Rosalind Wiseman is the best-selling author of Queen Bees and Wannabes, which became the hit movie Mean Girls. She's co-founder of Cultures of Dignity, which is a nonprofit. Rosalind, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. And Shantara McBride is an author, life coach, founder of Marvelous University. Shantara, it has been a pleasure. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for having us. Together, McBride and Wiseman are authors of Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Important, Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. So like I said at the beginning of the episode, we're launching a new series on Top of Mind where we talk to people about their own experiences with courageous discomfort. We're calling the series Stick With It. And we'd love to hear your story of a time when you encountered a perspective that felt challenging or uncomfortable, but you chose to stick with it and you're glad you did. Send us an email, topofmind at byu.edu. It doesn't have to be some giant life-changing thing. 
This can happen in small ways on a daily basis, like when you're in a conversation with someone you care about and they say something that bothers you and normally you just stew quietly or brush it aside. But instead, you lean in and get to someplace new with that person. And these situations don't even have to center around conversations with other people. Like maybe there's a topic that's been popping up in the news and you've avoided it because it's complicated or you don't like how it makes you feel. And one day you decide to stick with it and see if you can get to some new clarity. I have a story like that and I am going to share it with you. It's about the concept of white privilege. I don't recall ever taking note of that term until maybe eight years ago, during the big wave of racial justice protests after Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson, Missouri. I did not know what white privilege was exactly, but it sounded really bad, like white supremacy. So I immediately thought, whoa, thank goodness, (laughs) that doesn't apply to me. I can put it in the box with racism and discrimination and slavery and all the other bad stuff related to race in America that I am not responsible for. Close the lid on the box, move on with my life. In hindsight, I realize I was afraid to probe the notion of white privilege because I didn't want to know if it applied to me. Because if just being born with white skin makes me privileged in some way, what am I supposed to do with that other than feel guilty? I had never considered myself privileged in any way. I'd associated privilege with people who don't know how good they have it. It was those kids from the fancy part of town who complained about getting their dad's hand-me-down Mercedes for their 16th birthday when I was thrilled to occasionally borrow the family van to run an errand. Privilege was having name-brand clothes and a weekly cash allowance. I wore Sears-brand clothes, and the only money I had was what I earned, babysitting. Privilege was going on family vacations overseas, not driving all day to grandma and grandpa's house in California and sleeping on a cot in the garage that smelled like motor oil. Privilege was being able to goof off a little in high school because you didn't need an academic scholarship to pay for college. I had not lived a privileged life. I had worked hard for everything I had, I thought. Then, a few years ago, I get a check in the mail biggest check I'd ever seen, equal to more than a year of my salary. My grandpa, nearing the end of his life, had decided, apparently, to distribute his wealth to his grandkids. The guy who'd made a living as a traveling clothes salesman was somehow worth more than a million bucks, and I was inheriting a nice little nest egg out of that. After marveling in shock at how large my savings account had grown in a single instant, it hit me. This is privilege. I am privileged. Then the discomfort set in. The term white privilege popped into my mind. And this time, rather than stuff it back in the box with all the other things I was sure did not apply to me, I paused. Because if I'd never imagined I could be privileged and an inheritance check changed that in an instant, how could I be so sure that I didn't also have white privilege? So I pulled a book off of my shelf at work that I had done an interview about previously. It's called Waking Up White. It's by Debbie Irving. And she describes being in grad school in her late 40s when she learned that the GI Bill that paid for her father's college education was largely denied to black veterans who fought in World War II. And learning about discriminatory practices that made it harder for people of color to get home loans at a time when all across the country, owning a home became the primary way to grow your wealth. And about redlining that meant home values in white neighborhoods increased much more than in black and brown neighborhoods. When I first read the book and talked to Debbie Irving on Top of Mind, I remember thinking, oh, this is really fascinating. But also immediately like, oh, but this isn't my story. My dad was too young to fight in World War II. He barely missed Vietnam. (laughs) So he hadn't received any GI benefits, and he and my mom had a string of unlucky home purchases during my childhood, so there was no clear privilege at play in their property assets. But my grandpa hadn't thought about that. He had fought in World War II, had received GI benefits to go to college, where he met my grandma, 
And as a young white couple in Southern California in the 1950s, got an affordable loan on a home in a middle-class suburb surrounded by other young middle-class white families with stay-at-home wives and white-collar husbands. And the value of that first home they bought increased so well that they could upgrade to a bigger house in a beachfront city when their kids were teenagers. And holding on to that house for a few decades gave them a windfall when they downsized to a retirement community near the beach. And they used some of that money to buy some rental properties in a fast-growing college town. And at the end of Grandpa's life, he sold all that property and had lots of money to give to his grandkids. Now, I knew most of this story really well. My grandpa had traced the timeline in countless conversations with me over the years, always ending with his very favorite piece of advice. The smartest thing you can do with your money is invest in property. Well, now holding this inheritance check and remembering Debbie Irving's story of waking up white, it was like I'd been standing in front of a Christmas tree for years thinking, that is a nice tree. And someone suddenly plugs in the lights. And now I could see clearly how my grandfather's whiteness shaped the contours of each branch in the story of his American dream. And that light now shone on me. I was the beneficiary of my grandfather's white privilege. And furthermore, what else in my life had been easier or more profitable because I'm white? I have never been afraid to call the police when I'm in need, for example. Is that at least in part because I'm white? I've never had trouble finding Band-Aids or makeup to match my skin tone. I've never been shadowed by security in a store when I linger around expensive merchandise. My hair is naturally very, very curly, but I have never been told to straighten it so that I look more professional. I could go on. But the point is, I suddenly saw how my whiteness had everything to do with my experiences in life. And in more ways than I could ever know, being white had afforded me certain benefits. Privilege. Now, that does not feel great. But just seeing it more clearly is empowering to me. I don't recoil anymore when white privilege comes up in conversation. It's just something I have. Didn't ask for it. I can't get rid of it. But I can try to make something good come of it. Okay, so now it's your turn. Tell me about a time when you felt challenged and you made the choice to lean into that discomfort, to stick with it, and you're glad you did. We focused a lot on race today, but these opportunities can happen around any topic or encounter. Send a quick email to topofmind at byu.edu and stay tuned for this new series of conversations we're calling Stick With It to start showing up on the Top of Mind podcast feed. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.